Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ravi Shankar about his essay, The Five Room Box, which appeared in issue 21 of The Common. Ravi Shankar is a Pushcart Prize-winning poet, translator, and professor. He has published 15 books, including W.W. Norton's Language for a New Century, Recent Works Press's The Many Uses of Mint, and the Muse India award-winning Tamil translation, The Autobiography of a Goddess. He has taught and performed around the world and appeared in such venues as the New York Times, NPR, the BBC, and PBS NewsHour. He received his PhD from the University of Sydney, and his memoir, Correctional, is out this fall from University of Wisconsin Press. Ravi Shankar, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here, Emily. We always like to start off by setting the scene, so I wonder if you could tell us where you're calling from and describe to us a little about what it's like there. Sure. So um, I just finished this fellowship at the University of Sydney, so at parts of the last couple of years, I was in Australia, and I just finally relocated back to New England and. I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, actually in Cranston, right on the Providence-Cranston border. And uh, I, we, my partner and I have a, a little office um, that's kind of, uh, our place is close to Roger Williams Park on one side and the water on another. And so uh, that's where I'm speaking to you from. That sounds really nice. Um, I had a friend who lived in Cranston for a little while. It's very nice down there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, would you read the first few paragraphs of your essay for us, sort of as a little introduction? Yes, absolutely. Thanks. Um, So this is the five-room box, and it's in five sections, and I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs of section one. Tomorrow is Amma's 70th birthday, and I'm wondering what to buy her. She's told me that the only thing she wants from her children is a new toilet seat, a pair of sensible black shoes, or a replacement floor mat for her decade-old Honda Civic. None of those gifts seem particularly appropriate to such a consequential birthday, but then again, Alma's always been practical. When she tells the story of her arranged marriage to my father at 19, a decade younger than this man she had only met once before, she recalls bringing a a griddle and leaving behind stamp albums as she embarked upon a permanent journey from her home in Coimbatore, South India, to Northern Virginia, though she would never see it this way. My mother's is the story of a woman born into a patriarchal patriarchal society considered property and consigned to do the bidding of men. By all accounts, including her own, she had been blessed with an ideal childhood. After Madras, Coimbatore is the second largest city in Tamil Nadu, a place sometimes referred to as the Manchester of South India because of its many factories and industrial heritage, but also with the slightly derisive edge. Nearly half the motors, water pumps, and wet grinders in India are manufactured in this city, the little of the music or culture of its British counterpart. Thanks for reading that. Would you describe what the piece is about just for our listeners who might not have read it yet? Yeah, it's a piece that um, reflects on my parents and my mother in particular and her immigration to uh, the U.S. in the late 1960s, but it's also very much a a piece about identity. And though I was born in Washington, um, D.C., during the middle of my third grade year, we uprooted to take care of my grandmother who had cancer, and I spent uh, a year of the formative years of my childhood 
in, in Madras. And so it's about that time. And it's juxtaposing my parents' migration story with my own sense of displacement being a young boy uh, and what it, what it kind of meant to me as a man today. Thank you. Uh, so I know this is excerpted from your memoir, but I was wondering if you could tell us how you came to write this piece specifically or, or this specific part of the memoir, like what inspired it, how, how it came together. Sure. And, and this is where I, I have to credit uh, a really wonderful editor is a rare thing. And so the Commons, Jennifer Acker, is, is terrific. And uh, we met and I had this chapter uh, in the memoir that is about some of these these experiences. And I shared it with her. And she thought that it could be recast into a discrete essay. And so uh, the piece here is actually a significantly different. Uh, I've, I've turned it into to five uh, parts. And I should just mention that the, the name of the essay, The Five Room Box, comes from a, a Tamil phrase, the Anjari Peti, which is uh, many households will have. And it's just a little uh, container that you uh, keep your spices in, usually has five compartments and mm-hmm. different uh, spices for your Indian cooking, your masala and turmeric and uh, all of these things. So um, yeah, I, I decided to put this essay into to five sections. And then I also had to think about um, finding a, a closure with it. Uh, so it's discreet. In the, in the context of my memoir, it's telling this larger story of my family history. And I I wanted to distill it a little bit in the, in this particular piece. That's really interesting to hear. I think um, we don't talk very often about you know what it's like to craft an excerpt from a larger work that that would fit on its own and stand on its own. Um, and and I guess yeah, I guess I didn't know that that you and Jen um, had worked that much extensively on it. Um, do you want to say anything else about sort of how like how that piece came together? Like, was it very difficult? Did it come together easily? Uh, well, I, I think um, when Jen and I had our initial conversation, I, I looked to, to recast it a little bit. And I, I actually ended up taking um, portions from different chapters in the memoir uh, oh, actually, cool. uh, to, to make this particular essay. And, um, it, you know, I, I often think about form and uh, the, the fact that there's, there was this object, this artifact that my mother still has lent itself very naturally to the pacing of the essay. And I, then I thought, okay, I have these five sections and I can move temporally uh, and kind of uh, ideologically uh, through different issues by, by using this form. And so that really helped as well. And then, of course, Jen's feedback uh, helped, helped me really kind of craft it and hone it. That's very interesting. That process of sort of pulling together separate parts sounds challenging, but also, you know, very much like putting together a puzzle or something like that. Yeah, I like that. So I know this is your first book of prose after after a very long, successful career as a poet. It, did you find any specific challenges of sort of switching gears from poetry to prose? Oh, yes. Wow. I mean, uh, <laughs> if, uh, this correctional has been, you know, about seven years in, in, in the making, uh, probably. And, um, uh, you know, as, as a poet, I think um, I'm, I'm very interested in language, but particularly the sonic and imagistic qualities. And as a prose writer, I, had, I felt I had to pare that back uh, and um, to grapple with the larger contrivances of plot and character development and dialogue and all the while um, mining the actuality of what happened and writing about people who might not particularly want to be written about. I mean, these are, this terrain was totally new for me. 
uh, as a poet. You know, I, you know, I've written poems about people, but usually they're kind of too, too encoded for them to <laughs> ever. <Yeah. say> <laughs> um, but in, in this case, uh, you know, I did um, publish some other excerpts um, as op-eds and, and that gave me a sense uh, of, of what I could include. But it really did take a lot of crafting and many drafts and feedback from many trusted people. And every time I thought I was done, there was another excruciating layer of unpeeling that had to happen. And I guess, you know, for me, at least, uh, as you get closer to the areas where you really don't want to speak about something or it feels really uh, vulnerable and painful, that that's really where the heart of the story is. Yeah, it's true. That is where the magic happens, but <laughs> it's very easy to avoid until you really, really have to do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we heard from the part you just read a few minutes ago that this piece sort of starts out with an exploration of your mother's experience as a young woman and then sort of suddenly a young bride married to someone she doesn't really know and moving suddenly to America. And from there, the essay, you know, as you say, it covers a lot of different topics sort of pieced together. And it includes your own personal experiences as a boy in India and in America. I'm wondering, like, do you have a sense of why your mother seemed like the right starting place for, for a piece that's covering all these different things? Yeah, so I, I think um, right around the time that I was uh, kind of editing it, it was in fact my mother's seventieth birthday, and she figures pretty prominently in in, in this book. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, much of this book is about um, choice, conscious choice, but also um, when fate is predetermined in some way. And uh, my mother's story—I mean, she's really kind of an exceptional, lively woman, but she really had to kind of do things that she didn't necessarily want to do because of the society she was born in. And that that felt to me like a, a nice vehicle to explore my own identity, where I have had a lot of choice, but I've also made a lot of mistakes. And how did I come to to do that, I thought my mother would be a good vehicle to enter into that. Yeah, I get such a great sense of your mother from from reading this essay, the experience when she's in India and sort of helps you with, with sort of a bully or a conflict at school. I thought she really, really came out of that situation. Yeah, you know, she's such a, a gregarious person. She was just visiting, in fact, and um, she will just talk to anyone. It doesn't matter. And uh, she just has a kind of warmth about her. Um, but she also is fiercely protective as a mother is. And so, yeah, in the essay, I have uh, the little moment where she has me return this bag that's uh, a little kid had stolen from me. And, uh, you know, I think that there's just a, a certain a bite to that gesture that it's only in retrospect that I even realize. <laughs> yeah, that is the beauty of writing about childhood too, is understanding a lot more about it the second time. <laughs> so so as, as you probably know, the common publishes work with a modern sense of place. That's that's our focus. And this piece is certainly very transporting since a huge portion of it takes place in India um, when you're visiting as a boy. And you, you write about it very beautifully. But this piece also creates a very interesting sort of liminal place in the in-between, you know, where this young boy is never fully at home. He's not Indian enough in India. He's not American enough in America. Can you talk about what it was like to write those experiences of being sort of always in between? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a feeling that many, uh, particularly um, you know, first generation immigrant uh, children have where mm-hmm. um, your family is still clinging to some vestige of what the life was like in the old country, and yet you're trying to assimilate and fit in uh, and, and and be American, and that there, that conflict that it creates um, uh, can be disconcerting and even traumatic at, at moments. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think 
I owe part of becoming a writer to that experience because when you do feel like you don't fit in to either place, and you know, I write about in this essay uh, when I go to, to India, uh, the kids around me say I sound like John Wayne, and it's like, what? what are you doing? <laughs> uh, and um, so, for the first time, I felt really American, and yet here I was in India, and. Um, but so to navigate that space makes you more of an observer, at least me. And so I, I, I think I just kind of slowed down and I kind of realized. And, and now I feel really lucky to have had these two heritages to draw from when it comes to my identity. But growing up, it was, you know, pretty, pretty excruciating because you just want to be, you know, a normal kid, one of the, one of the guys. Uh, and I, I do think going to India for that year made the connection I had to my heritage that much more palpable. Uh, and and I think that's probably why I still have this pretty strong connection to India today. Yeah, there's a really nice part in the essay where you talk about how sort of like coming back to America after having been in India so long, you you feel like it, it could be a good thing that you have this other identity as opposed to like a, a negative thing, uh, you know, like that it's a, a bit of a superpower or something like that, that you have more more about you than the other students you know, know about or see. Yeah. And, you know, it was something to take solace and especially, uh, and, you know, I think young kids are always cruel, uh, but um, to feel kind of excluded. And, you know, I certainly had my fair share of racist comments and things when I was a young kid. And so um, in the, the the secrecy of my own mind and home, I felt, okay, well, I, I have this other dimension of knowledge and experience that these kids don't. And so I can kind of forgive them their limited perspective, but you know, yeah, it, it, it made me feel like, okay, there's, there's something greater out there than what I see around me. Absolutely. I would love to talk a little more about your memoir correctional, which, which is coming out this fall. And it's, it's about time you spent in jail after violating probation. And in a piece for the Marshall project, you you wrote, nothing made me feel more American than being incarcerated. I would love to hear more about that idea. (laughs) Well, yeah. So correctional, this, this piece in the common is, uh, you know, a, a, part of the narrative, but kind of atypical because the, the kernel of that, the story of that memoir, in fact, is uh, 90 days that I had to spend uh, at Hartford Correctional um, on, on nearly a decade ago. And um, uh, uh, this was for, um, well, actually, it, it begins with uh, uh, a stop uh, and frisk that I had in New York that I was totally innocent of. And when I got um, racially profiled and arrested on an erroneous warrant. And I talk about that experience. And then later, uh, as a professor in Connecticut, I ended up having these other encounters with the law. And um, I had DUI and I had a suspended license and very stupidly was driving on it. And I violated the probation and I had to do these 90 days. And so when I say uh, nothing has made me feel more American, I think that uh, we all know it's the kind of the great dark secret of um, American life that um, we incarcerate, you know, 25% of the world's prisoners more than China and Iraq and North Korea combined. Mm-hmm. And that the demographic of who we choose to incarcerate is is very uh, racially polarized. And uh, I, I know all of this theoretically, and I've read about it and watched documentaries about it. But until the moment where I actually had to to spend time in jail, I didn't really realize the actuality of that and how difficult it is once you kind of get enmeshed in the system to get yourself out and how little possibility there is of rehabilitation or, or change. Um, so all of these things 
hit home when I actually had to experience it firsthand. Um, and I should mention that while this was happening, I was also going up for promotion to as full professor at a university, Central Connecticut State in, in Connecticut. And so the media also got a hold of it and it became this big news event in Connecticut, which also profoundly affected my life. So it's also about the, the role that media plays uh, in, in the criminal justice system as well. Yeah, it's very interesting. I've read some things that you wrote about sort of like the, the racial makeup of, of the correctional facility that you were in and that, you know, how it was predominantly black and Hispanic and, and you were one of the few Asian Americans there. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, I, I guess I've seen your, your writings about sort of being the model minority, like what it means to be the model minority um, as an Asian American. And like, was that experience affected by by being in, in that sort of racial makeup when you were in the correctional facility? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I was probably one of only uh, one or two. There might have been another Filipino American, but, uh, you know, I was actually and much of uh, what I thought jail would be was not what it was like. I mean, I wasn't in the, uh, a cell. I was in a dorm with um, 60 other men and there was a, a dorm on the other side and we had these bunks that made up a, a cube. And so you kind of had to interact with your cube mates in, in a lot of ways. And um, but of those, you know, in the two dorms, 120 men, uh, I would say easily 90 percent were um, either African-American or, or Hispanic-American. And I found that um, race certainly um, on, on the inside. I was uh, called all kind. Everyone had a, a shorthand or a nickname. And in fact, I came to find that that's how, a sense of how you would fit in. But. You know, I was called everything from, you know, Abu Dhabi to Bin Laden to, to <laughs> India, you know, when they found out I was a professor, professor. Uh, and um, I, you know, I, I found that there was also, um, and this is, this, I, I, I think of the model minority myth, which was a term invented by a white sociologist, really, and <laughs> is kind of used to, to mobilize uh, Asian Americans against African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and, <laughs> and, and erroneously, I think, um, because actually uh, some new Asian immigrant populations are uh, like the Cambodians and the Bhutanese and are among the poorest. Uh, and um, so there's this great um, income gap. But uh, many of the people that I met felt like, oh, OK, you have had benefited from far more privilege than I have, which was which was certainly true in, in, in my case. But I also had experienced a similar kind of discrimination uh, based on the fact that I inhabited a brown body, and especially after 9-11 was seen exceedingly as a threat. And so, um, you know, I, I f feel like this book and my position is is an interesting one because I really straddled both sides of that world. Uh, I was both unlike the men that were around me, and I was also deeply like them. And, and that's kind of the territory the book explores. Yes, and it's such an interesting nuance that you're talking about, this sort of that growing up with with privilege, especially compared to the you know the type of people that you were in the correctional facility with, it doesn't pr protect you from racial profiling. Doesn't protect you from you know the kind of treatment that you had from the police. You know that was that was unfair. So you're sort of both dealing with the same thing, but from like very different life standpoints. Right. Um, I would love to know how, how the time you spent in jail changed the direction of your work as a writer. I mean, like correctional is obviously an example of, of a direction that you went, but I also know that you did a PhD in, in Sydney. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, um, when, when this happened to me, and it was, you know, in, in the midst of a very successful career as an academic and a writer, all of a sudden I had these encounters with the law that I, for reasons I didn't really understand. And the correctional is my grappling with why I could have kind of destroyed my job and my, my marriage also fell apart and my, my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, um, I actually ended up resigning my position at Central. I, it, was, I, it was a union position and nothing I'd done really affected my teaching and I could have stayed and fought for my job, but it had become a toxic place. And so I, I wanted to work on this book. And at the University of Sydney, um, I, I got this uh, a wonderful opportunity to be an international research fellow and work on a doctorate. Um, and which included critical writing. And so I undertook an exploration of um, prison memoirs by American men of color. Uh, and um, I started really looking into the, uh, the roots of um, uh, mass incarceration and when did it start getting racialized, uh, kind of tracing it back to our Puritan forebears. And um, in fact, it was the Quakers who were kind of the left-wing party of, of their time <laughs> looked at prisons as a, uh, and as a more humane alternative to what existed before then, which were the the sanguinary punishments, uh, you know, public floggings and beatings, right. and executions, and and so certainly, but they felt that silence uh, and so solitary confinement very much comes out of that, and, and work, and so there are a lot of um, exploitation of prison labor were rooted <laughs> in the the early ideals of the uh, American prison and. Uh, and then I started looking at, um, well, it's no coincidence that the two great moments of explosion in prison growth in American history, one came after the Civil War in the post-Reconstructionist South, where there was this kind of uh, prison-to-plantation pipeline that was created. Right. And, and the other one was right after the end of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1970s with uh, Ronald Reagan's war on drugs and President Clinton actually really exacerbating things with his the crime bill that he, he put in. And so from 1980 to the time we're in now, I think the prison population went from something like 300,000 uh, uh, to uh, 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 150,000 or so to 1.2 million or so, almost a thousand percent increase uh, during that wow. time, which is, you know, in a moment where we are experiencing the greatest kind of prosperity and wealth collectively as a society. So I mean I, I so I started really thinking about and and looking at that, and um, you know I, I also started um, reading um, prison writing. I mean I didn't realize uh, so much um, everything from uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress to uh, mm-hmm. Bothius's Consolation of Philosophy were written in prison, um, and so um, I guess the other thing that really happened was um, and this is ongoing. Uh, with the on, uh, impending publication of the book, is that I, I felt like I, I needed to do something that I wanted to create something not just literary, but make some pragmatic change. And so I, I have begun connecting with criminal justice reform organizations, and I um, have joined a, a theater group, and still we rise, uh, based in Boston. It's composed of um, people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system, and they do uh, performances. And so I actually had my acting debut. Uh, last fall, which was uh, fun, but I um, also connected with um, a, a gardener, Garden Time, that um, brings uh, gardening skills into incarcerated facilities. And I've been running um, writing workshops. And so I, 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 I think uh, this is work I, I hope that I, I, I might have been doing, but I, I certainly know not, not to this degree. And so the time that I fa- found, uh, spent 
there's this great Japanese concept of uh, wabi-sabi, right? which is uh, kind of, uh, you know, in, when you're making a pot in uh, Japanese ceramics and it might crack, we might think of it as ruined. But there they inlay that crack with gold and call attention to it and it becomes worth even more. And that idea that, you know, I love that, that the scar is somehow the source of the beauty. And so having kind of gone through the most terrible time of my life, uh, the reverberations of which I'm still dealing with, uh, I I really feel like, okay, well, what I actually, it's a blessing in disguise because I encountered these men I never would have met. They shared their stories with me. I made a promise to these men that they they said, you have a voice and we don't, you know, I want you to share our stories. And so I felt like I needed to, uh, you know, um, meet that obligation. And um, so all of that, I think, has been good in the midst of the, the carnage of what happened, um, really positive kinds of uh, green shoots, I suppose. I wonder how you feel about, how, you know, things that have been happening in the news in, in the last year since last summer. I feel like there's much more talk about incarceration and mass incarceration and how it affects people of color, especially like, do you feel like things have changed a lot, at least in the conversations since, since you were incarcerated? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, um, well, I, I've been working on this book for quite some time and it really, um, unfortunately, uh, took the um, the murder of George Floyd for people to to really... I mean, I because the statistics about um, mass incarceration should have really had us protesting on the streets long ago. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that it has um, punctured public consciousness. But I, you know, I'm old enough to remember a similar kind of feeling when Rodney King was beaten and Abner right. Lee. And so, does it? It does feel like okay, we're on this precipice of something really happening. But um, so much of that is bound up with our politicians and with legislation. Um, I, but I, I do think that the conversation is shifting and there, there is much more um, awareness. And I'm hopeful that this can be the moment of a sea change. But I, like I said, I've been hopeful before. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so as well. One of the aspects of, I think you said it was part of your, your PhD thesis, um, but that I've seen in your other writing as well, is this idea of how incarceration or the criminal justice system is sort of tied up in our need to like shame people or, or like, like that comes from a puritanical background. And I think that that's so interesting and also something that is not talked about a lot in terms of how, you know, people who come out of the criminal justice system are often not very employable. And is there like a real legitimate reason for that? Or is it just based around sort of shaming and embarrassing people and excluding them? Yeah. You know, uh, I, and my, my partner does a lot of work on um, bibliotherapy and shame. And um, in fact, you know, if we think about the scarlet letter, right, Nathaniel mm-hmm. Hawthorne's, um, you, a lot of times it's the difference between guilt and shame. I mean, a guilt is something that you can atone for, but shame is something you, you are, in fact, a criminal. And, um, and so it's displayed um, on your body. And that impulse, I think, um, w- did not go away when we created prisons. And um, I, you, I think, you know, we should think about are prisons meant to be places to, to punish people? Or are we trying to help people better reintegrate and equip them with the skills to reintegrate into, into society? Um, you know, the, the other principle I kind of explore um, in, in my exegesis is um, the influence of Calvinism. And this idea of the predetermination of the elect, which I think still really holds sway. And this idea that um, if you had wealth, it was a, a sign that you were um, part of 
God's chosen, and and those who who did not. In fact, it was a, a their station in life was justifiable in some way, and I think that uh, that sense has um, led people to you know. I mean, uh, once you've paid your debt to society, you should be able to to be employed. But I have been helping and talked to so many people who, for whom it it is a life sentence. They might have had a minor offense as a youth, and after that, they they couldn't hold down a steady job and. They had a family to provide for, and so it's not surprising that they end back up uh, in in institutions like uh, like prison. And so, I, I I think it's really incumbent upon us. So very easily, um, I think we kind of dismiss uh, uh, people who've done a crime um, without thinking empathetically about what it means for our society. And in fact, it's costing us uh, economically and socially so much money uh, to continue this um, policy that doesn't really break. I mean, I also mentioned that the rates of recidivism in the U.S. are really uh, high compared to the rest of the developed world. And so why is it? Why are we funding this kind of broken system? And is it to actually um, enforce these unspoken about um, social imperatives and to propagate systems like racism? Uh, I think if we look closely, that might be the case. Yeah, there was something you mentioned about a sort of like New England brand of of <laughs> puritanicalism or sort of a um you know, I think those of us who who live in New England, I include myself in this, um you know, think that that we don't have as many problems with racism as for example the south or something like that. But um would you talk a little bit about how it's still present here but it's just sort of under the radar, sort of, you know, boiling under yeah, you know, I, I grew up in in Virginia, which I didn't even Northern Virginia, which I didn't even realize was south of the Mason Dixon line until I got to UVA and I saw people flying the Confederate flag. Mm. What about Southern racism? I feel it's it's overt. It's kind of in your face. Right. And you know where you stand. The insidious thing about racism in New England is that it is kind of in the institutions. No one talks about it. Um, the statistic I bring up in in the memoir is Connecticut is um, perpetually one of the top two or three uh, richest states uh, in the country per capita. And yet um, over um, 30% of the population in the inner cities of Hartford and Bridgeport, New Haven, live below the poverty line and they're communities of color primarily. And this is something that is not spoken about. There's this very Robert Frost, uh, good fences make good neighbors kind (laughs) of reserve. And so, you know, we unseemly to talk about it because, you know, we have a Democratic governor and um, we are, you know, staunchly liberal. And, um, you know, and I also think um, there is a certain condescension I found when it came to my the liberal sensibility of some of my really well-intentioned friends when they kind of talk about um, communities of color. And it, I think it's because they probably haven't really been exposed to communities of color. And so they have these ideas that uh, could probably be challenged. Yeah, I also think, I mean, you know, the Common is part of Amherst College, which is very much a racially diverse college now, but certainly was not up until, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or something like that. Um, And I think that a lot of the racial diversity we have in our area comes from having these these world-class colleges and universities that that do bring in students from all over and students from all backgrounds, but I don't think it's really inherent to this this area. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So uh, if we can switch gears, uh, I just noticed looking at your, your bio that it seems like you've done a lot of work in collaboration with other writers, um, which I think is is not terribly common. So I wondered if you would talk a little bit about what that process is like. You know, are there, are there things that you can achieve in collaboration that don't happen when you're working on your own? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, it, in fact, even when I think about uh, this memoir, uh, uh, that you know, the number of voices that gave me feedback and editors who worked on it. I mean, there's always a collaborator. I, I was just recently thinking of, um, you know, Nelson Mandela's uh, autobiography, which he wrote in prison when he was doing 27 years. And uh, a, a kind of footnote to that is Mac Maharaj, who, who was his uh, Indian, uh, a person of Indian origin who transcribed and smuggled out this book uh, in, in the history, right? So there's always this idea of collaborators. I found I had one book in particular, What Else Could It Be, um, where I collaborated with a number of different writers, um, everyone uh, from Jim Daniels to Eileen Miles to um, uh, Camille Dungy, uh, Alvin Pang, a Singaporean writer. And um, it, it, it for me, I, I might be tone deaf. I think I have a sense of rhythm, but it's the closest I'll ever come to feeling like a jazz musician. And um, when it is really working, I think this really uh, exciting thing happens, and there's a third voice that emerges. It's it's not your own, it's not the other writers, but somehow in the coming together, um, um, this thing happens. And I've also worked on a lot of uh, anthologies. You mentioned the Language for a New Century, which my co-editors uh, Tina Chang and Natalie Handel were wonderful, and it really you know it was our ideas in dialogue and in conversation that helped shape this book, which I think is still the, probably the most comprehensive um, collection of contemporary South Asian, uh, East Asian, and Middle Eastern poetry today. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I feel like uh, uh, I'm part of it when you collaborate, of course, also is that, you know, half the work is done for you. So, <laughs> you know, that, uh, I say that kind of uh, facetiously, of course, but um, I, I just, I, I'm really excited by uh, the newness of what it's like to inhabit someone else's mind because other writers and other thinkers, I've actually also done stuff with visual artists and uh, musicians on occasion. And um, wh what it does uh, to transform your own sensibility is, is pretty extraordinary because the direction the work goes is often very surprising. And uh, I find that the, the richest uh, work happens in that space. I also know you've done some translation and I think, you know, I've talked to other translators in the podcast and it definitely seems like it can be a very collaborative process, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think that some of the translation you've done hasn't been necessarily with living poets. Have you done any sort of collaborative translation? Uh, I actually uh, have. I um, worked uh, uh, with a Japanese poet, Yuki Nagai, on her, her translation. So she's a performance poet and then we did a workshop in Tokyo and of course she... Her uh, English is much better than my kanji, so she was able to kind of put her words into the uh, basic English foxtrot, and we talked about it, and I was able to then help bring it into uh, English, and I think she's a really extraordinary poet. But the book that I, I, I worked on, my mother tongue is, is Tamil, that's the, the language my parents speak, and uh, there is this figure, this goddess, uh, Andal, who um, lived in, in the 8th century uh, and she's the only female saint of the 12 Vaishnavite saints, the 12 uh, saints of Vishnu in South India. And she wrote or composed all of this work before the age of about 14 or so when she wow. disappeared. Uh, and no one knows really what happened to her. And uh, 
her poems are still recited at South Indian weddings today. And so when I met uh, uh, Priya Sarukai Chabria, Indian writer at a festival in India, and we started talking, we realized we had this figure in common who's huge in, in India, but really not known at all in, in, in the West. Um, I think people might know Mirabai, who is another Bhakti poet of the North, but Andal had only been translated in a scholarly version and not really well. And so Priya and I undertook this book, uh, the Autobiography of a Goddess, which is um, published by Zubon, a great feminist press in India and University of Chicago Press in the U.S. And uh, the interesting thing about this translation was that because she lived in India and I was in New York at the time, uh, we worked on the initial part of the translation and then we uh, separated and worked on the translation separately. And then when we got back together, we shared them. And the work was so distinct that we decided in the in the book to include both my translations and her translations of the same poems, um, so that um, it's almost kind of kaleidoscopically getting um, through both versions, maybe closer to the original. And then we also um, included some translations that we worked on collaboratively. And uh, so that that idea, I think, really came out of the, the work that we t- did together. Um, but I, yeah, I really, I think Andal, she's kind of a, a South Indian Rumi, and um, uh, really, she's a, a Bhakti poet. Bhakti is the the notion of diving deep, uh, and so her poems are very sensual. And um, yet, the thing that she longs for is the transcendent, and that tension, I think, is is really amazing. I'm so glad you talked about that book because I was going to ask you about it. It just, you know, I had not heard of this character before, and she just sounds so fascinating to me. The idea of being sort of a real person who really existed and really wrote poetry, but also this sort of mythological figure, you know, being sainted and everything. I'm just, I'm going to have to get the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have to ask you, uh, you share your name with the very famous sitarist Ravi Shankar. And um, I have known about him since I was a little kid, because um, as a child, I was very obsessed with the Beatles. And obviously, (laughs) the Beatles collaborated with him. Uh, So I was just wondering, could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, is that a common name? Is that is it strange for you? I know you you eulogized him in the in the I think the New York Times when he passed away. Yeah. Um, well, absolutely. The one thing I'll mention first is that naming conventions in India are are quite different. And so, mm-hmm. uh, my father, for example, his name is K H Shankar, which uh, is Kaudam Pakalam Harihan Shankar, and Kaudam Pakalam is the village that he came from. Uh, Harihan is really his given name, and uh, um, uh, his family name, and uh, Shankar was his given name. And so I, I was named Ravi Shankar because I was born in January, and in South India, uh, there's a festival of harvest called Pongo, uh, and Ravi in Sanskrit means sun. And so that's why I was kind of given that name. So it was utter coincidence. My parents weren't even music fans. I think my mom might have liked John Denver, <laughs> but uh, there was no ragas being played at my house. It was just a kind of a coincidence. And then um, certainly from uh, as early as I can remember, um, there was this connection that was being made. It's less so now, but um, certainly at least once a week, um, someone would react with either uh, amusement or uh, bemusement or disappointment uh, at the, uh, you know, uh, ask me, you know, if I had been at Woodstock or later if Nora was <laughs> my daughter. And um, so it was a strange thing to, to live with a name that was um, uh, someone who was more famous. And it, I kind of, I wanted to very much interview him and I was meant to in Boston one time and he, he fell ill and I wasn't able to. 
Um, but it made me think of um, the capricious nature of, of names in, in general. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was a part, um, you know, I've had, I, I de- detail in this essay, uh, a couple of experiences I did when I was in New York, I got invited to this a very fancy party and a, a, a guilt edged invitation was delivered to my door <laughs> of my dingy Brooklyn walk up and it clearly meant for the other Ravi Shankar. And I went and, you know, ate lobster canapes at, uh, uh, with Roberto Colasso. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, on the other side, I was at a, a little um, a reading at the Carborough Poetry Festival. And um, it was mainly a, a kind of elderly crowd that was there to, to see me. And I got up, they introduced me, and I start reading my poems. And this elderly man stands up and he points his cane at me and he says, that's not Ravi Shankar. <laughs> and he turns back around to everyone and says, this guy's an imposter. <laughs> and slowly, and because they were all elderly, it took like what seemed like forever. They all departed in their walkers and wheelchairs and turned around and left the room, leaving me with like two people in the audience. So, Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I've had all sides of that, uh, you know. It, wow. I like to say it's my great curse and blessing. Well, yes. And I think you wrote somewhere that you are the third most fa- famous Ravi Shankar. Is well, that right? Yes, there's uh, three streets. Three Sri Ravi Shankar of, of the art of living is a, a, a mm-hmm. spiritual guru with devotees worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, yeah. It just, it strikes me as very, very interesting. Uh, I have one last question, which is just what you're working on now. Like what's next from you? Is it back to poetry? <laughs> uh, well, you know, as a, constitutionally, I'm a poet. You never really mm-hmm. stop working on poems. But um, I'm really, uh, in October, um, Correctional will, will be out and we're starting to set up readings and I'll be doing promotion for that. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like now I really want to, you know, write some speculative fiction or a detective story or something. I mean, oh, certainly I've, I've grown very tired of myself. <laughs> so... Uh, yes, uh, um, I am. I do have a book of poems where I'm um, trying to bring Asian forms into the English language. I mean, I, I think the guzzle has kind of made it in. Of course, people know about haiku, but there are so many forms that are as uh, iconic and interesting as a sonnet or a villanelle. Uh, and in the Rig Veda itself, there are hundreds of poetic forms. And so I've started writing English um, versions of that. And that's kind of a longer term project. Oh, wow. Well, that all sounds very, very interesting. Uh, Ravi Shankar, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to talk with you. It's been a real pleasure and, and keep up the great work at The Common. <laughs> it's our pleasure to do that work. Listeners, you can read Ravi's essay and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.